Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I have a very exciting speaker joining us. Uh, Anton Guinea from Australia. He's a coach, a consultant, speaking on leadership under pressure. He's got some amazing stories that have shaped his his thinking in this space. We'll get to those very soon. Uh, And he focuses on working with leaders to deliver the best version of themselves. And I've probably destroyed your sentence in some way, shape or form. But uh, Anton, very happy to have you with me uh, on the show today. Ah, thanks for having me, Eric. So, Anton, why don't we start out with your story? Because it's fascinating. Um, you had three three events that shaped shape your thinking. Why don't we start there? Yeah, cool. Thanks, Eric. So, uh, first one, at the age of 21, I was unlucky enough to get blown up in a switchboard. So, I was working at a, at a chemical factory in Gladstone. I finished my apprenticeship, so I was qualified as an electrician and... Um, couldn't get work in town at the time and finally I did get a very, very short term role on a shutdown out of the chemical factory and and I rushed a job. I was working with a tradesperson who uh, we were working together and we were working closely to put something or mount something in a switchboard. We were working in switchboards. Mm-hmm. We'd isolated, we'd tested for get dead, so we'd done everything right, we thought. The problem was that I was rushing that job and I used a steel ruler to measure where we we're going to put those components in that switchboard. And so, oh, wow. and that was a really, really poor decision and it was a poor safety decision. And it was a, a decision that was based on the wrong priority. So the priority was to, for, in my mind, in that moment, was to get a pat on the back or to get a job because it was only a <laughs> short-term role, um, to impress. So all those other things that shouldn't be on your mind when you're doing work in a switchboard that's potentially fatal, sadly. Even though we'd isolated, which I'll tell you that story in a sec. Mm-hmm. But as I started measuring, the steel ruler got in behind the main switch and got either got close enough or contacted live electrical buzz bars and it blew everything up, including me. So I was wow. exposed to, we now think about 20,000 degrees C of... Um, Mm-hmm. carbonized air caused by that arc flash and my hands and my face and my neck so I had long sleeve cotton clothes on so I was sure. in work clothes but still my face and my hands and my neck and my arms were, were burnt really badly so I had about 15% of my body was second degree burnt and uh, and that's and Burns pain, Eric, is something that I won't even try to get your listeners to understand. It's just a, it's a horrible experience, and I hope for for your sake and for theirs that you know no one close to you or yourself have been through burns pain because it's just um, it's just an horrific thing. And can imagine. Mm, and they can't do much for the pain on site, so I got down to the nurses' station, and she could use water, and 
Um, tried, tried really hard, got in an ambulance, got to the hospital where they could use some morphine and take some of that pain away and then, then it was into the recovery for the next five weeks and I say that I was doing a five minute job, I was trying to save a few minutes and I went home about five weeks right. later. So I went to intensive care with the arc flash which is what it was, you get burnt internally as well and there was some concern about my internal organs and the ambulance drivers shared with me, God love them you can die up to a few days later from these injuries. <laughs> I said, oh, thanks. Oh. Thanks, team. Good, great information. <laughs> and so I was off to intensive care and we were trying to see what the internal damage was. And fortunately, once I got to intensive care and they started checking that, it wasn't too bad. And then it was off to the Burns Unit in Brisbane where we, I got some really, really good care down there. And, and part of that, that healing process was, you know, all of that dead skin had to be removed because... Mm-hmm. It was obviously char grilled. It was cooked from the the explosion, and and the new skin had to come through from underneath. And that experience of debriding, it's called, where they re- basically remove all of the skin on your hands and your face, uh, and mm-hmm. do that quite um, specifically with tweezers and scissors, so they get under the skin where they can and pull it off and then they cut it off and get a nice little poly skin happening in a in a little silver kidney shaped medical mm-hmm. container it's quite the horrific process it was something that you know I had a lot of painkillers for <laughs> they gave mm-hmm. you this thing called a suppository that was interesting um, and you know I still look back on that it was as a really painful experience and just an emotionally painful experience probably too, just getting a facelift and getting almost and watching people peel my, my skin off. And, and then, of course, there's the rehab because with burns, your skin tightens up. So, so yeah, it was a pretty horrible four to five weeks recovering, Eric. Um, and, the re- and I'll just go back to that story I was going to tell you before because I said we'd isolated and mm-hmm. tested for dead. We'd isolated the panel that we were working in and tested that. Yep. But the whole board, the switchboard itself, was not isolated. And the buzz bars mm. were coming in through the main switch. So the line side was isolated, but the live side was still live. And the steel ruler got in behind the main switch where those buzz bars were. So because it was so thin and, and it was so flexible, and I, you couldn't even see the gap in between the main switch. It just got in behind it and all of a sudden caused this massive arc flash. And, um, yeah, it's horrible. it really was horrible. And you don't you don't sort of see it or you don't, like I don't remember being in an arc in the fireball because they come and go in 0.5 of a second. So these things just, yeah. you know, they come out, boom, and then they've gone again. They self-extinguish. They literally bang in and out. And in that 0.5 of a second, you, you're just exposed to all of that heat energy and that you know, carbonized air. And the, the air is actually electrified as well. So it's ionized because of... Um, the the short circuit or the the electrical process sure. that's going on. So they say you get electric shock at the same time, <laughs> which is interesting. So you get electric shock at the same time you get the the arc flash and the arc burn. So that was interesting. And I was lucky that where I was holding the ruler, uh, it mm. looked like and it felt like the the electrical current actually didn't go across my heart for some reason. Once they did the checks, my heart was was okay, and we couldn't find any exit no. wounds on my body. So. Very, very lucky and uh, and grateful that you know I didn't lose my life that day, and uh, and I'm I'm here to tell the story. 
Wow. And you had two other boom events. Yes. I remember we talked about yeah. it. <laughs> I, love, I love that word, boom event, because that's what the switchboard did. went boom. And then, um, so 10 years later, probably, I I was actually working in a copper smelter. So I'd, after, the, after that first event, that first boom event, Eric, as you can imagine, it's really horrible and it's really hard coming back from that. And there's this thing called sure. post-traumatic stress, right? And I, I really feel like I probably was in that space for a few years. I couldn't talk about the incident for 10 years. I was was down about it. I was down on myself about it. Um, I didn't want to be an electrician anymore. I did it for a few years on a mine site because it was low voltage. So I thought, oh, that's safer. Mm-hmm. But I was... I was never really a safe worker because I was so scared of electricity when I was on the tools sure. then, right? So I'd worked out that I wanted to get off the tools and I wanted to climb the ladder of corporate success as you do and be a leader. So for some mm-hmm. reason that that switchboard was the spark that sort of changed a few things in my life. And one of them was, I'm not going to work as a spark anymore. I'm going to do something with my life now, which I realized that I hadn't mm-hmm. been. And one of those things was study. The other one was do leadership. And so I got off the tools as quick as I can, got into some maintenance planning roles and some leadership roles. And and a few years later, I was uh, was age 29, so it was probably eight years later, I'd done a degree and I'd done some other stuff. And and I was finally at superintendent slash manager level in an organisation. And I'll never forget that this was 20 years ago, right? Mm. And... You know, it's sort of a bit of a legacy of what what we call 1900s leaders <laughs> or the old school leaders. And this mm-hmm. refinery was very old and some of the leaders in it were a little bit old school. And, and I, was, I was a new leader, so, you know, I was, sure. I was learning leadership. And what happened was I, I went to a management team meeting and I was relieving in a manager role and I was sitting with, with the team of the senior leadership team. And I'd made a really significant mistake on, on some work that I'd done on a budget. So, mm-hmm. And the, the mistake was my budget was over by seven times because I was uh, calculating it in yen, not Australian dollars. <laughs> Just a slight mistake. <laughs> so many millions of dollars, right? Um, but I remember sitting in that management team meeting and making and sharing that mistake. And the management team went nuts right and 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 abusive aggressive abrupt and it was like Mm. you know in your face swearing like that really that 1900s leadership style and it was it was ugly ugly Mm. and it and i i still say to this day that it hurt my heart right that you know what do we pay you for what do you you know you're this and you're that and you know it was really it was really hard to, to deal with in that time because I just didn't have those skills at the time. Sure. And and it was one of those sort of moments, and it wasn't the only time, that wasn't the only time that it happened on that particular site. And it was one of those sort of periods in my life where I went, you know what, achieving all these goals, sometimes they're not all that cracked up to be. You get to this point and you go, sure. Is, was that worth it? Was it worth all the effort to be abused? And to be, you know, yeah, I'd made some mistakes, but geez, I would love to be coached and mentored rather than, mm. you know, brutalized. Abused. Like, absolutely. Brutalized emotionally. And so, and I actually, 
It was, wasn't long after that I jumped out of out of employment because I said, you know what? If that's the way you've got to be to be a senior leader, that's not for me. Mm. Now, this remember, this is two decades ago. And so I made a, I made an, a call, a conscious decision to to actually help leaders be better than that. So, True. so I made a decision to actually go out and be the person that did something about old school leaders. And I've been on a mission sure. since then. If you're an old school leader, you know, I'm coming for you basically. <laughs> and if you, <laughs> if you want to be a new school leader and if you want to be a little bit emotionally connected and have conscious control and not think it's okay to go and, you know, abuse or be aggressive and be abrupt, come and talk to me and we can work with you. Um, mm. Or if you've got a leader like that, I'm here to help you and your team deal with sure. those types of leadership styles. And that's the best version of yourself. That was beautifully put when you said that at the start of the session. I want to help leaders be those good humans. I want to, and, and that's leadership, just being a good human. And so that second boom event, Eric, was, was such a game changer because I was so career focused. I was so driven to, to, to do leadership and then to see poor leadership. The one, the decision that I, one of the decisions was, that's how I'm never going to lead. I will never ever sure. lead a human. And often we lead, we learn from our worst leaders how not to be. Um, probably sometimes better than the best leaders we've had, unfortunately. That's right. <laughs> we never remember the ones in the middle. We remember the, the really great ones who, who made us feel great. Yep. And then we remember the sort of the really poor ones who didn't. And so right. exactly. I, I say to leaders, be memorable for the right reasons, Eric. <laughs> So, so, yeah, so that was the second boom event, mate, to, to work for really crappy leaders that just changed my whole career trajectory. Sure. And now I'm self-employed and I've been working on leaders keeping their calm ever since then. Mm -hmm. so. so in terms of calm, you talk about cool, calm, and collected. Mm. The topic you cover is really around leadership under pressure. Mm. And every leader has seen pressure at some point in time. Sometimes there's a major event that pops in. Sometimes there's a crisis that you're dealing with. So tell me a little bit about some of the tools and tactics that those great leaders drive when they're under the pressure. Love it. Can I, um, can I lean into that just quickly with the third yeah. event first? And I'll tell you. Absolutely. I'll tell you. So, so two years ago, 25th of May, 2021, I was, on a, so I was consulting on a power station site. Mm -hmm. and literally the plant went boom it's all over the internet you can go and google all this information there was a major turbine on that that power station that blew up the turbine shaft separated from this machine it was a world scale event oh. it never happens and i feel sorry for the plant that it happened in fortunately no fatalities mm -hmm. fortunately no injuries and and obviously, two years later, that, that, that turbine's still not on back into service, I believe, now. So, But it was so scary, Eric, because the noise was horrific. The offices were close to the plant. Mm. There was a whole range of um, other flammable materials around that. The building literally blew up that the turbine was in, and we could see it still exploding as we were evacuating the plant, right? And... The problem was that because the turbine went down and they lost power to the site, you couldn't, you couldn't actually 
do a roll call. You couldn't, you didn't know who was on strike. Oh, right, because you had no power. So how do you do, how do, you do that then? And, and so it was clipboards, it was pen and paper, right? And it was, and on that side, it was a small country town. And you didn't, and you had brothers and sisters and wives because it's a small community. Mm. So people didn't know whether their loved ones were hurt. It was, it was a scary, 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 scary time. And at the same time, though, uh, you know, with with the leadership under pressure hat on, I was watching those leaders respond to that event. Mm. And I was watching the general manager. I was watching their senior leadership staff gather the troops, pull everyone together, make sure we were safe. And and Eric, they did such a good job. They just nailed it. And from then, for me, it's been that was the example for me. That was a crisis event of mammoth proportions, sure. a world scale event, and well managed. And so now, in, in answer to your question, what did they do? So to me, uh, the first thing was there was there was. This, this amount of calm that was across the place. And I always use the word calm now because I just felt calm. And the skill set was, for me, being in control of your faculties. Now, what I mean by that is that mm-hmm. um, emotional control sure. drives behavioral control. Now, yep. There is a skill to emotional control, as we know. And we now know from mm-hmm. the Daniel... So I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. i probably bring a bit of theory into it now, if that's okay. Because yep. since then, I'm, as you know, I'm, um, I'm now doing um, pretty much PhD research into leadership under pressure because I really want to get inside people's heads and, and do the research to validate a lot of the, the work that I'm doing. So there's this, this conscious control or this emotional control piece where... The first thing we need to do to be in emotional control is to be able to to describe our emotional state, to be able to put language and words around our emotions. We know from Daniel Goleman's research in emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. that even writing it down or or talking about it or being able to speak in emotions helps us to control our emotional state and have this conscious control around our emotional state because that drives our behavioural state. So step number one, Eric, is to understand that you are now in amygdala hijack, which means that you're in fight or flight response, mm-hmm. which means that sure. your pituitary gland has sent a, a, a message to your adrenal gland, which has released cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and you are now high on cortisol. And now it's very easy for you to get out of control, and your body wants you to. Yeah. So it's sent all of its um, blood and energy to your outer extremities so that you can fight or flight as you need to. Mm-hmm which is obviously a primitive response pattern. Now, to be able to combat an emotion, a, a amygdala hijack is about being able to understand that we're in this emotional state and then regulate that emotional state. Now, the way that we regulate that emotional state is through our languaging and it's through our breath. Now, and, and this, yep. is, this is the shortened version of probably a two-day program of lead, how to lead under pressure. The first thing is in our languaging, Talk in emotions, but don't talk in too powerful a words. So we want to. We don't want to talk about when we're under stress, we're under pressure. We don't want to use words that have too much emotional power in them. So, oh, geez, we're going to die, or we're going to, 
or this is a tragedy or this is a catastrophe. So our languaging <laughs> will drive then what's going on inside us because, and it will drive what's going on inside us and those people around us. So if you use big catastrophic words or big powerful words, all of a sudden you heighten other people's emotional state as well. So we want to be really, really aware of our languaging. And so the first thing that goes, Eric, when we're under stress or under duress is our breath. So we, because we start to breathe very shallowly. Right. Now, if I could say to leaders, the one skill, if you, if you did nothing else after listening to Eric's podcast today, learn to breathe. Now, Mm -hmm. we we were born, (laughs) we were, we all popped out and, you know, from a creation and evolution perspective, but let's cover both sides of that so I don't offend anyone. Um, you know, we pop out and we've, one of the first things that babies do is they gag. As soon as our lungs hit oxygen, we gag, Mm. we take our first breath and it's called the gag reflex. And that's about the only breathing training most of us ever got. (laughs) (laughs) And then we learn the rest on our own. And so leaders under pressure forget the importance of their breath and they forget the importance or they forget how how much their breath is required to make sensible, smart, controlled, consciously controlled decisions. Sure. Because... So your brain uses 20% of the oxygen that you inhale. 20% mm-hmm. of the oxygen goes to this 1.3 kilo lump of mass in our head, gray matter. 1.3 kilos, 20% mm-hmm. of the oxygen, 20% of the calories. Right. Now, and given that the first thing that goes when we're trying to make these decisions when we're under stress is our breath, because we're, we're breathing, because we're breathing so shallowly, what we've got to do is we've got to take a step back and we've got to start breathing properly. We've got to, and, and, and what, what's breathing properly mean to you? Well, where there's a whole range of breathing techniques, but the message is breathe in a way that you feel relaxed. You can relax yourself with your breathing, which will help your breath help your speaking and help your languaging so the first thing that goes when we're under pressure is our ability to speak properly that's only because we're not breathing properly sure now by oxygening oxygenating our body properly which means breathing belly breathing and slow breathing Mm -hmm. and holding breathing all of a sudden our brain is full of oxygen which it needs and we are more relaxed and we know that when we're relaxed, we make better decisions. And even the, the, the world could be falling down around us. We know that breath work changes our brain. And it's called, I call, mm-hmm. I call it aerobic decision-making. Decision-making <laughs> with oxygen. <laughs> like doing aerobics. Not anaerobic, which is like <laughs> without oxygen, but aerobic decision-making. Right. Now, the other skill that... I'm about to, um, next Wednesday, I'll be submitting on a paper to a, to a journal, I think in the States, um, public service psychology journal. So I'm going to submit a paper on leadership and all of this this stuff. And one of the skill sets is um, once we've got our breathing right, once we're in conscious control, there's, these, there's this concept called normative competence. Normative competence. Mm-hmm. Which is tied to decision-making and it's tied to 
it's tied to decision making that is focused on the humans that are involved, the future of this particular boom event. So it's really easy yep. to get sucked into the moment, but we've always got to have a forward focus. Those people, what we know about decision making and and, a, and crisis events is, the more we can have a forward focus, Eric, the more we can be looking to um, the future. Yes, we've got to. Yes, and and leaders will be listening to this, going, hold the phone. You know, all you've told me so far is to breathe, and I get that. And language. And language and languaging, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And um, and slow slow your body language, slow your body down. Actually, slow down, literally slow down. Mm-hmm. Sit down if you can, because you want to you want to be as relaxed as possible. Now the next thing is normative competence, which is decision making. And yes, you've got to deal with what's going on right now. You've got to deal with that. There's we've got to contain. We've got to contain the crisis event. But at the end of the day, we've also got to be looking forward. We've got to be saying. The decisions that I make now will affect us in the future. And mm-hmm. what we've got to be looking at is the humans involved. I always say, let's look at the humans involved. And let's unpack the way that our decisions are going to impact them. So leaders can tend to forget that as much they're stressed, but what about their teams, Eric? What about, mm. what about everyone around them who's also extremely stressed? And this is the problem for leaders. They get wrapped up in the organisation stuff or they get wrapped up in the political stuff or they get wrapped up in you know, how they're feeling. The easiest way to have conscious control and emotional control is to have a forward focus and think about other humans. Think about the mm. impact of our decisions on others. How will this decision impact other humans? When we can get to that point, when we're actually thinking about impacts, uh, outcomes, and we're thinking forward, we're not just thinking in the moment, normative competence, decision-making with a future impact focus. And then that will help other people stay calm around us as well. Because what we don't want to do as leaders is we don't want to incite, we don't want to... We don't want to inflame a situation, people's mm-hmm. emotional state, right? We want to help them stay calm sure. and collected. Now, what we know is there's this thing called emotional contagion. Now, what mm-hmm. emotional contagion is, is our emotions are mirrored by those around us. So, right. so the, the more that we can stay in control, and this is the beautiful part about being in conscious control for leaders, the more leaders can stay in control, the better their teams will too. Because while leaders are out of control, this emotional contagion, the energy that goes with this and the energy that comes through in the languaging, all goes towards driving other people's energy state up. So what we want to do is we want to... Sure. We want to and, and leaders need to be that focused on other humans that they they can actually see what's going on for them. This is part of... Being in control where you can think fast, talk slow. How's this, mm-hmm. how's, how's this person going? How's that person? How's my leadership team going? How's my disaster management team going? The leaders need to be that focused on not only the situation but the other people around them. I think sometimes that gets forgotten as well. 
This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, de- develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. I think the it, it quite quite a bit there. I think the altruistic looking at others gets you also more grounded in terms of it's not about me and my emotions. It's about the broader group. Definitely. Let's unpack a little bit more. You talked. You said something about think fast, talk slow. slow. So tell me more about that idea, because I think that's a, also an equally important element when it comes to how you respond under pressure. So think fast, talk slow to me is the summary of the Daniel Goleman model. So Daniel Goleman mm-hmm. talked about self-awareness, self-regulation, social awareness yep. and social regulation. So that when you're looking at someone else, Eric, you can actually be thinking about what they're experiencing in the moment while you're talking to them. Now, to me, it is the absolute epitome of multitasking. It's multitasking. It's tough. I know, which is tough, right? And, you know, we say, we, mm. you know, there's no such thing as multitasking because we're task switching. I say when we're talking to someone, we're multitasking because we're having a conversation with ourselves at the same time that we're talking to another human. And the thing is, we have triggers, so you, there's stuff that you might say that might trigger my emotional state. When we're heightened, it's easy to trigger people, especially when we're in a boom event. I might say something that triggers your emotional state. And even for those listening, I just watched where Eric's eyes went then. And so that's part of thinking fast and talking slow. Mm-hmm. What, what's that? What, what do those body language movements mean? What, when I say something, what does that response mean? And if Eric gets triggered when I'm talking to him, make sure that I'm aware enough of that so that I can change or regulate or influence your emotional state in the right way so that I'm not an, I'm not inflammatory, if that makes sense, especially in the moment. Sure. So I know what I'm doing to either trigger your emotional state or bring it down. So think fast, talk slow. What's the other person experiencing when they're with me? Mm. Is what I'm saying landing? Right. Am I speaking too fast? Am I speaking too slow? Is my intonation right for this particular person? Mm-hmm. Are they with me? Are we connected? Are we in rapport? Am I communicating clearly enough? Because in, when we're under pressure, the, the, the instruction has to be very specific and it's got to be clearly communicated. Yeah. And we've got to make sure that, that that message is clearly delivered and clearly understood. So that's thinking fast, talking slow. That helps, absolutely. And let's touch a little bit on blame. So you've, in a lot of events, you talked about your second boom event, which was blaming Anton for everything. What's the element of blame? Because we have a tendency of gravitating towards blame when something bad happened. Tell me a little bit about what should be the right response. Um, Yeah, great. Thanks, Eric. So human species we tend to look for the person that caused it Mm -hmm. did it that is responsible instead of looking at organizational 
situation, circumstances that could have led to this boom event from occurring as, occurring mm. as well. Um, I know even back when, you know, when my switchboard event occurred, remember the general manager mm. coming up and saying, look, um, I was in intensive care in Gladstone and though I'd started to mm. sort of come, come around, and it was either that day or the next day and he came up to see me in intensive care and he said, oh, I just want to let you know it's, it's all good. We, we can't fault you or something like that. I know, right? It's an interesting comment. <laughs> I know. It was something like that. And, and, I, and I sort of thought, oh, so you're trying to. <laughs> and they'd worked out that... The, and I didn't know what had happened. They'd worked out that there was a little gap around the switchboard. That's how I found that out because I actually didn't know that. I didn't know what had happened. Uh, right. Right? Right. But the thing was, the first response for most people when they're investigating or when they're looking for causal, causal factors, we go to humans. Now, it's natural because, well, it's not really. Uh, yeah, it is natural. So 96 to 99% of workplace incidents and injuries mm-hmm. are blamed on or, or caused by human error. Human, yeah. Behaviour. Yep. So... Even at that level, so you just read the internet and you read that, all of a sudden you think, like you're conditioned, the human's wrong. It's, you know, mm-hmm. oh, can we, can we get to zero harm? No, because we're all human and we're all going to make a mistake. Well, yeah, I get that. And so there's this whole, we're human, we're going to make mistakes, and so we're going to blame someone when something happens. But the thing about that is, is that you don't look far enough back. You don't look at the organisation or you don't look mm-hmm. at everything else. And when you blame people... What you do is you actually stop them reporting. You stop them um, contributing. So you don't have psychological safety in your organisation. And psychological safety is a big deal. So if people don't feel safe to report, we know that, and you know this, that safety cultures, strong safety cultures are predicated on two things. One of them is reporting culture. How easy is it to report? How willing are people to report? The next one is how easy is it to communicate about safety and how willing are people to do that? So especially at the front line, is safety okay to talk about or are interactions Mm -hmm. and, you know, are they an obtrusion into our just getting our work done? Sure. Right? So, you know, when you're measuring safety culture, you're measuring those two things. And when you blame people, you you get people not to report because they're fearful. So blame cultures just drive fear. They drive psychological safety down. And and they drive the wrong message in an organisation that if I report this, I'll get sacked or I'll get disciplined rather than having a learning experience. Now, I get it. Some of your listeners will be thinking, mm. um, yeah, hold on a second. There are some times where people do make intentional mistakes. Now, if you make an intentional breach, any any investigation flowchart starts with what was the intent? Was it to, to break a procedure mm. or was it to... Um, was it just a mistake? So, what was the intention mm. behind it? You know, and if there if there's an intentional breach, that's a different discussion. Most of the time, it's not though. Most of the time, it's not an intentional breach, and we've actually got to use a coaching, a coaching mindset, more leadership rather than a blame mindset. Does that answer that question? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two two leaders I worked with mm. a while back, and and both made a shift where instead of blaming, finding fault with the individual third, blaming their role in it, right? Even if they wasn't the final fault, they started recognizing some of the elements with the actions that they did and how it impacted and influenced the outcome. What's incredibly powerful there is when the senior leaders start speaking that way, 
other leaders started taking their part of ownership. And so the, the element in terms of if you really want to drive safety ownership, it's incredibly powerful because when you start removing the blame, recognizing that lots of people are part of it, then others are willing to be vulnerable as well. Great, great summary. Beautiful summary. Taking that extreme ownership. Great book to Leif yeah. Babin and... Um, mm-hmm. Leif Babin and... And Jocko Willink was the other author. Jocko Willink, yes. Um, so a lot of conversations around psychological safety. Yeah. Um, we've talked to a little bit about removing blame, which is an element, mm-hmm. a contributor to psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit more about how that links back to leadership under pressure. Oh, thank you. Um, and great question. So psych safety, Timothy R. Clark, four stages, inclusion safety, learner safety, contributor safety, challenger safety. So are we included? Do we feel included? Is it safe for sure. us to learn in this organisation and learn from our mistakes? That's the blame piece. Is it safe for us to contribute to be the best version of ourselves, to bring our whole selves to work? And is it safe for us to challenge the status quo? Now, poor leadership doesn't include blames, People don't feel like they can contribute and don't ever challenge the status quo in a poor leadership organisation or poor leader, poor led, mm. poorly led team. In a, in, a great, in a team with great leadership, come in, inclusion, we know that there's no groupthink. Groupthink yeah. came out of the NASA um, Challenger disaster where the junior engineer wasn't listened to. And so this is inclusion mm. in decision-making defer to expertise in the organisation who's the right person doesn't matter what level they are to include them in the decision if we need that information bring those people at the, to the table learner can we learn from our mistakes uh, have we got a learning culture in the organisation in general terms do we send people away to conferences do we do we give them leadership coaching and mentoring do we help people grow and develop we know it's a fundamental human need to grow and contribute and then the the contribution or the um yeah, yeah, the contribution safety is about, you know, not feeling like... In, so in Australia, Eric, we've got this thing called a tall poppy syndrome so that if you do a good job, people try to pull you back down. You know, you don't want to you don't want to stick your head out of the trench because all of a sudden you'll get shot, right? And, and <laughs> I know we've, we've got a weird culture like that over here. We've got, and if you, you know, you don't want to have too big an ego, you don't want to shine too much at times. This is contributor safety, right? I know it's weird. I know. Mm. There's some people that, you know, in, in sometimes at trade level or in our, um, in our, what do you call them, craft teams, people mm-hmm. have got to slow down to, to slow down and, and work at the same level as the rest of the team so that the project goes longer or so that they, right. you know what I mean, they don't shine. And that's contributor safety. You've got to be out, you've got to be able to do your best work and not feel like you're going... Best version of yourself, right? And then challenge your safety. Is it okay to challenge the norms? Is it okay to say to your leader, hey, I think there's a better way to do this? And will your leader listen? So psychological safety is feeling safe to take interpersonal risks. Thanks, Amy Edmondson, for that Mm. great definition. Interpersonal risks, which means speak up. In short, psychological safety is, have you got the right people saying the right things because they're comfortable to speak up and challenge Mm. and contribute? sense Anton thank you very much for coming sharing your story uh, leadership under pressure an important topic because when you're in a world that safety is relevant matters you're going to be faced with some pressure hopefully not of your 
your boom events, mm. particularly your first and your third boom events. Mm. Um, but it's good to be prepared, to reflect, to have the skills, um, to think about how do I describe? So I, I recognize the triggers, mm. really think about how do I regulate my breathing you talked about that, that resonate with me, the language I'm using, not big words, we're going to die or anything of that nature. Mm. Um, you talked a lot about the breathing and then really the forward focus and, and looking at the people and the humans in front of you. I think those are really good takeaways from from your your message so Anton thank you so much if somebody wants to get in touch with you learns more about what you do how can they do that um, the guinea group is probably the best place to do that on the interweb Eric or uh, email me Anton at theguineagroup.com.au so would love to hear from and many of your listeners would love to talk them through how we could um, how we yeah if they want to want some support around leading under pressure psych safety or any of the other work that we do with leaders please reach out that'd be great to hear from them. perfect and thanks for having me too really appreciate it great questions great stuff thanks again thank you thank you for listening to the safety guru on c-suite radio leave a legacy distinguish yourself from the pack grow your success capture the hearts and minds of your teams elevate your safety like every successful athlete top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Makrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.